Hey everybody, welcome back to Grey Malk and Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, at last issue, the X-Men battled the mediocre Meccano with a K that makes him menacing. <laughs> and they got enough money to fly to Europe so that they can save the captured Professor X from Factor 3. That's basically all the information you need. Uh, we had the wonderful guest Zach Gorman with us last time, and we are thrilled to have uh, Mr. Ron Mars here with us today. Ron, thank you for being here. No problem, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Uh, we also have Heather here. Hi, Heather. Hey. And, uh, and a, an old colleague of mine who I haven't seen in years, and we've been having fun catching up, uh, Mr. Travis Bundy. Welcome, Travis. Thanks for having me. Uh, so today we're going to be reviewing X-Men number 37 from October 1967, uh, written by Roy Thomas with uh, the creative team of Ross Andrew and Don Heck with letters by Artie Simon. We'll get to that in just a little bit. First, let's have each of you introduce yourselves, if you will. We'll go in the order of Ron, Travis, then Heather. Let us know your gender pronouns, what you might be working on right now that we can be excited about. And then a simple question for today's introduction is, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you on an airplane? Which is relevant to today's issue we will see shortly. (laughs) Ron, do you want to start? Sure. Uh, I am Ron Mars. I've been writing comics for more than 30 years which means I haven't had a real job in more than 30 years. (laughs) Looking to keep it that way. Um, So I've written Green Lantern and Silver Surfer and Marvel versus DC and Star Wars and Batman versus Aliens and and literally a thousand others. So um, I've done this dance for a while. Um, I I am a he, him, or hey, stupid. Um, (laughs) I will answer to most anything. And uh, I think the worst thing that's ever happened to me on an airplane is a thing that didn't happen to me on an airplane um, through sheer willpower uh, in that I flew back from Hyderabad, India uh, to JFK in New York City um, with a really bad case of let's call it intestinal disturbance. Okay. Um, uh, to, to, to be as not graphic about it as possible. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I got a, I got a dose of, uh, sort of stomach discomfort that you, that you might, um, that you might get in India, which was an awesome trip. But at the very end of it, I got a hold of some food that did not agree with my Western sensibilities. Um, so, um, so I was clenched from, uh, from India to JFK, shall we say. Uh, and that was the most unpleasant, uh, unpleasant plane ride I've ever had for 14 hours or whatever it was. That's a long clenching. <laughs> it's, it was, it was, uh, it was through sheer willpower that, um, that I landed in JFK. And I believe I am the only person ever in the history of mankind to be um, really glad to see the inside of a JFK airport bathroom. I'm guessing you're not the only person ever. There's a lot of international flights. (laughs) Uh, Heather, do you want to go next? Sure. I'm Heather. My pronouns are she, her. Um, Mine is similar to Ron's, but um, I've been flying my entire life. Like I don't even remember my first several flights because I was so young. Like I have no problem with planes. Um, But a few years ago, I went to Missouri to visit my granny 
And on our way back to the airport for her to drop me off for my return flight, we stopped and got some food. And I kind of made a joke that it was a sketchy looking restaurant, but it ended up not being really sketchy, even though it kind of did end up being sketchy. (laughs) Um, And so I was coming home and almost back to Salt Lake and hit the worst turbulence I have ever experienced in my life. And again, I've been on a lot of planes. So that's saying something like it was really bad. And it turns out that I had food poisoning Mm. during this worst turbulence I've ever experienced in my life. And so the only time in my life I have ever thrown up on a plane and I felt a little bit bad because I had been sitting next to this little girl and her mom and they were so nice and all this stuff. And the little girl slept through most of the turbulence. But then I'm sitting there like being sick and the mom's sitting there and she was like offering me tissues and stuff. She's like, I'm really sorry that you're sick. I was like, yeah, me too. (laughs) But that was probably the worst thing that's ever happened to me on a plane because it was just awful. And I was just praying for us to land sooner. (laughs) Man, I hate airplanes. Now that we're talking about it, you got to stay in this little spot and you can't move and you're sick. That's terrible. Uh, Travis, do you want to go next? Yeah. Um, Travis, uh, he, him, uh, I am a, a local Pacific Northwest artist. Uh, I did run a, uh, a small press imprint for about a decade. Uh, we, that's how I met Chad. Um, we published one of his books and to my, to our credit, still one of the best books we ever published. So thank you very much. It's really good. <laughs> yeah, no, it, was. it seriously is. It's one of my favorite that we ever did um top to bottom um but uh yeah and as far as uh plane stories uh i as chad well knows i was a bit of a heavy 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 drinker back in the day and i was coming back from a convention in uh, los angeles and um my plane was late so i decided to just get completely obliterated in the airport on beer not even thinking that that would have to make me pee a lot. And uh, so we get on the plane and then of course the plane is even delayed even more and I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm sweating. It's not fun. And I got into a fight with the, uh, I wasn't, it wasn't a drunk fight. It was like, I think I'd sweated out all of the actual like drunkenness in my body, but I had to pee so bad. And the flight attendant would not let me go to the bathroom on the plane because they were still like, we were like technically moving. And we weren't ready to go. And I got into like a fight where she was basically like, I will call the, we will redock this plane and have you arrested. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's, that's probably not at that point. I was just like, okay, you're just gonna have to hold this. You're just gonna have to hold this and wait till you're in the air. And I ran top speed. I've never run faster on a plane to get to the bathroom. Once they allowed us to get out of our seats. Oh, I can imagine uh, so we're learning that bodily functions and airplanes do not mix well, <laughs> primarily. Uh, my name is Chad. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, for those of you that follow the chronology as I talk about my own backstory, I worked on the Marvel handbooks from 2000, I don't know, something to 2000 something. And during that, I wanted to, or I had, uh, I had ideas of launching my own comic career. So I wrote a bunch of books and yeah, Travis's company back way back in the day, it's been a long time. 
uh, ended up publishing my book, The Mushroom Murders, which was a lot of fun. So we used to do conventions together at the time. Uh, I was still doing the Marvel stuff for a couple of years after that, but it's been a minute and now I'm podcasting. So Ron, you and I may have cor- corresponded way back in the day when I was doing handbook gathering <laughs> information, but uh, but I think uh, I think it was a little a- after you were at DC at the time when I was doing most of that stuff, uh, although you've come back to Marvel in some capacities over the years. Uh, so my first question for you, Ron, as we start just with a, an interview, tell us a little bit about how you got into comic book writing. And what you might be best known for? Uh, I know. I know a lot of people out there are huge fans of some of your work. You're you're really intrinsically tied to certain characters in long runs. But give us a little bit of your history. Um, I started because I got dragged into this by Jim Starlin, um, and uh, because I was friends with Jim. I was, you know, we lived in the same area. I met Jim through Bernie Wrightson, and we just kind of ended up being in the same social circle. Played. Uh, played racquetball a few times a week and went to movies and went out to get pizza and beer. And, and those, you know, Jim and Bernie and Terry Austin and um, uh, obviously Terry Austin, well-known to X-Men fans. Um, Fred Hembeck, you know, this was like my social circle when I was a kid, when I was like 20 years old. And uh, Jim eventually, after I had copy edited Jim's first prose novel for him, because I was, um, I was still in college at this point. And um uh, working at the local daily newspaper as a sports writer, and then uh, not long after as an editor. Um, so I copy edited Jim's first novel for him, and he liked what I did quite well, and said, "Hey, did you ever, you know, did you ever think about writing comics for a living? A uh, good way to put food on the table is is specifically what he said, because I remember where we were when he said it. Um, and you know, of course, you think about writing comics, like, duh." But that's not a real thing that people get to do um, by any means. Um, but when Jim Starlin says you should write comics, you get to write comics. So he co-wrote a few issues with me of Silver Surfer um, as kind of showing me the ropes. And uh, when Jim and, you know, then took me up to Marvel and introduced me around. And then when Jim left Surfer, uh, writing Surfer to do the Infinity Gauntlet, as well as uh, Warlock and the Infinity Watch. Um, which, in retrospect, seems like a fine idea on his part. Uh, if, they're, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, if you're gonna leave Silver Surfer, you might as well do a book that they turn into two multi-billion-dollar films. Um, Good plan. Uh, so, uh, so they they handed me Silver Surfer uh, to write as a monthly book, and I have been doing it literally ever since. So, yeah, you you uh, wrote a lot, probably the longest run on Silver Surfer, correct? Yeah, I think so. I think I've written more issues of Surfer than Stan has. Yeah, you you wrote him uh, well through the '90s, and you're on Silver Surfer Rebirth currently, which is so yeah. Beautiful. Everything that just you know, um, <clears throat> just like uh, just like Godfather, they pulled me back in. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I am. Uh, I was going to say I'm actually currently writing Silver Surfer, but I'm actually done writing Silver Surfer. Uh, all five issues are written, um, but I'm back on the I'm back on the book. And between now and between now and back then, I've written. Uh, Green Lantern, uh, Thor, Superboy, Star Wars stuff, Marvel versus DC, uh, Batman versus Aliens, um, Silver Surfer, Green Lantern crossover, like a bunch of stuff. Um, I I think somebody had somebody gave me a a, um, a link one time, and I had written like I think at that point, like this was years ago, twelve or thirteen hundred comics. So uh, 
like I said, I haven't had a real job in a long time. What uh, what makes for a good Silver Surfer story? Um, apparently, Ron Lim drawing it helps. <laughs> <laughs> Ron Lim is phenomenal. Um, you know, a good Silver Surfer story. When I when I initially um, took over the book, the editor was Craig Anderson, and obviously he was very patient with me and showed me the ropes and um, really. Uh, obviously Jim was the one I wouldn't be here without Jim Starlin, but you know, Craig's kindness and patience with me certainly helped me get adjusted to, to doing this and, and navigating my way through it. Um, and fairly early on, he said, you know, surfers like, like Shakespeare, except they hit each other a lot. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's still true. I mean, it's still that sort of, uh, uh, that that sort of esoteric language and um, and you know motive broad motivations for uh, godlike characters um, and they hit each other a lot. So uh, you know, I just I think Surfer works um, Surfer works on a lot of different levels, and it took me a while to figure this out. It took me you know a few years writing the book to figure this out. Is that um, he can work as a lead character. He can work as a supporting character when he shows up in FF. Um, he can be the point of view character for the audience, or he can be the kind of the mirror character for the audience, um, reflecting mankind's um, uh, reflecting mankind's mankind's foibles back at them, mm -hmm. um, reflecting no pun intended. Um, but it's it's a <laughs> It's a you can do a lot of different kinds of stories with Surfer, which I think is why I wrote it for like five years or something like that. Is because you can do straight up superhero stuff, you can do cosmic stuff, you can do real sort of person personal driven stories. <coughs> um, I found the character to be very elastic. The uh, I I was contemplating because this is an X Men podcast primarily, although I'm a huge Marvel nerd. I've read everything Marvel for a long time. But I was contemplating how strange it seemed to me in realizing Silver Surfer and the X-Men have not really ever had much to do with each other. For as long as they've orbited around each other, there's not been a lot of direct uh, crossover in any capacity. It was kind of strange to realize that. Um, yeah, well, I guess, the, you know, with the exception of the, of the Shi'ar stuff, the X-Men don't do cosmic a lot. Um, so I, you know, Surfer obviously is kind of comes from the the FF quarter of the of the Marvel universe, um, and that's where uh, that's kind of where he he keeps showing up. Um, and I think that you know now the Marvel cosmic corner of the universe, thanks to the films, um, really has its own you know has its own um, firmly established foundation. So. Uh, He's he's less of a guest star in you know in stuff across the Marvel universe. So I mentioned I was interviewing you to one of my best friends, and he's like, "Oh my god, I've got to talk Green Lantern with him." Travis, did you have any Green Lantern questions uh, for Ron that you'd like to talk about? Um, well, honestly, I just I was intrigued when I was looking up your body of work. I never was really a Lantern like reader. Uh, I did read anytime I read it was usually the Guy Gardner stuff because he was an interesting. It was a very interesting character for me as a kid, um, but like uh, the 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 arc that you did, uh, where um, uh, Green Lantern becomes like a mass murderer, that sounded really really awesome to me. And I was like, 
and they, it kind of ushers in like the end of the core and like you know gives Sinestro like a lot more like um, uh, a lot more value or a lot more I guess I guess just a lot more like like stuff to work with and that just seemed really interesting to me to like you know it's it's rare now I'm more of a movie guy and I I really rarely find something that I want to track down. And so now I think that's, that's one of the things I'm definitely going to track down. And I wanted to just, you know, see what you, what your thoughts over, like how like that fits into like, you know, is that part of your top 10 is, is a story you absolutely hated doing? Like, what is, what was that like? Um, I, you know, honestly, I don't, I don't have a top 10 of my own stuff for the most part. Cause I feel like that's for somebody else to judge. Um, the Emerald Twilight story with Hal came around because DC said, Hey, do you want to do Green Lantern? And I was like, yeah, sure. Because they were, they were, I know, you know, this is, I've since found out they were, they were reading my surfer stuff up at DC and said, oh, we kind of need, you know, Green Lantern kind of needs a kick in the ass. Um, Let's get that guy. So they offered me Silver Surfer and I was, or they offered me Green Lantern and I said, oh, that'd be cool. I, you know, I love that Gil Kane Hal costume and the, and I remember seeing them on Super Friends when I was a kid, and they were like, oh, wait a minute, here's the other shoe that's going to drop. Um, and they explained to me what they wanted my first arc to be, which is turned into Emerald Twilight with Hal being removed as the lead character and then, you know, creating a new Green Lantern to take over the title. Um, so the the very broad strokes of that story came from editorial. Um, and then they sort of handed it to me and said, here, do you know, do what you do. Uh, and then they let they let myself and the artist Daryl Banks kind of make up a new Green Lantern without without a whole lot of um, without a whole lot of looking over our shoulders. They kind of let us just make it up. Um, and obviously, it was it was approved. It's not like we just turned in something and said, "Here you go. This is your new Green Lantern." Um, but but there was a lot more creative control. I think then than you would probably be afforded now that now it would be much more of an editorial process so you've written hundreds of books over the years obviously and so much of it for marvel so creating so many spaces and you've written through some incredible crossover events and insanity with thanos and infinity this and that there's a lot going on constantly but I looked specifically as I reviewed your body of work Ron for your impact on the X-Men uh, and there's been guest starring roles in various titles you had one really lovely issue of what if uh, about what if Wolverine and Mariko got married, which was a lot of fun to read. Uh, but I want to focus our conversation for a minute, if we can. Oh, you also did the uh, Cyber Force X-Men uh, special where you had uh, Psy- Psylocke and Wolverine teaming up with, uh, what was it, Ripclaw and Cyblade, I think. Uh, if, if you say so, it must have happened. <laughs> but it was, it was fun to reread that stuff. I hadn't read it in a long time. But I think your most lasting impact on the X-Men was everything to do with DC versus Marvel and the resulting Amalgam universe. So for fans back in the late or in the mid 90s, I suppose, uh, DC crossing over with Marvel was something that was very, very infrequent. There had been like a Superman, Spider-Man crossover. I think the X-Men and the Teen Titans did something once. But getting these two companies to mix was very, very tricky. So we had a big title called DC versus Marvel that ran, I think, four issues, uh, and then broke out into a couple dozen uh, uh, what they called amalgam issues. So the, the the universes mixed together and you had Wolverine and Batman mixed into one person, et cetera. 
and and Ron, you were behind a lot of that as the lead writer. Can you give us a little insight as far as how DC versus Marvel took place or how it came to be? Um, I mean, the short answer is the bottom fell out of the direct market um, in, in terms of sales. The, the direct market had been, uh, when I started on Silver Surfer, so my first, my first regular issue on the title was issue 51 in either 1990 or 1991, something like that. And that first issue sold 300,000 copies. Mm. And that was sort of a mid-tier Marvel title at that point. Mm. Um, if, if a book sold 300,000 copies now, it would be huge fireworks kind of news. Um, yeah, yeah. So there was a, you know, there was a huge speculation market at that point, um, that really was driving the industry. And, um, as always happens, that bubble burst and a lot of retail stores got stuck with a mass amount of books they could no longer sell. Um, and a lot of stores went under, a lot of stores were, were just treading water. Um, so Marvel and DC got together at the highest echelons and decided to, to do a big universal crossover, which had never happened before. There had been any number of, um, you know, fairly contained crossovers, Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, Hulk, um, a number of other uh, sort of prestige volume, uh, Batman Punisher, Daredevil Batman, kind of one-offs. Um, but there had never been a, you know, this universe meets that universe crossover. So the decision was to, to do that story, do it in a four-issue series, um, and pump it into the direct market stores so that, um, so that there would be a, uh, a product that everybody wanted to get their hands on and could help float the business, uh, try to keep stores open. So that's, that's the real world concerns of how that all worked out. So I was, um, I was offered, um, one of the writing slots on the books because there was perception wise, there was a, you know, a Marvel, a, a Marvel team of artists and writer and a DC team of artists and writers. So, um, even though I, I was working at both Marvel and DC at that point, but I guess my my bigger deal at that point was was Green Lantern, um, and Peter David was sort of seen as the as the Marvel component of it. Um, even though uh, even though Peter was also working at DC, um, sure, yeah, you know it was it was an era in which you could work at both companies on a regular basis. Um, now that does not happen very often. Uh, so so they you know they split the they split the writing and art duties. Um, Dan Jurgens was the DC artist and Claudio Castellini was the Marvel artist, although we, you know, everything was mixed together. Um, so, um, so the real, you know, the real thrust behind it was, look, let's have everybody fight and sell a bunch of comics to keep stores open. Uh, and, and we had a hell of a lot of fun doing it. Um, and certainly at that, at that point, um, X-Men was still the, you know, was still the lead dog, was still very much the most popular book in the business. Um, uh, obviously, you know, we weren't that far removed from X-Men number one with, uh, with Claremont and Jim Lee selling 7 million copies or whatever it was. Um, so uh, X-Men was still um, the, the book. Um, and I, and certainly I grew up in the era in which X-Men was the book. It was the number one book month in month out unquestioned that was just the way it worked and everybody read x-men um 
And um, so obviously X-Men was going to be a large part of the story as well as, um, as well as the icon characters, as well as Batman, Superman, Hulk, Spider-Man. Um, so the, 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 the way the, the book was set up is it had um, Marvel characters pitted against DC characters and the, 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 the winner of the battle would, that universe would be saved and the other universe would be destroyed. Um, funny, it turns out that we didn't do that, but. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know. <laughs> but uh, but two, of the, two of the characters in the finale fight, there were five, there were five battles at the end that were, that, that readers voted on to decide um, which universe would win. Um, two of those characters were Wolverine and Storm, because mm-hmm. those were um, two of the most high profile characters um, in Marvel Comics at the time. Uh, so for, for our modern X-Men readers, in the last couple of years, they've had a public X-Men vote where you vote on the final member of the team. Last year, Polaris won, right? We've been waiting to see who gets announced this year. So back then, this is pre-internet in a lot of ways. Uh, this would be over phone or postcard or something. But yeah, they had a, they had public mail-in ballots where you could vote on which character would win which, which fight. And the two most relevant fights that you're talking about were Storm versus Wonder Woman and uh wolverine versus lobo and a lot of a lot of people don't know lobo uh what was it like to write those fights specifically do you do you remember much information um we really just i mean i wrote the issue that had i wrote issue three that had all of those fights in it um uh, and so the the trick of it was is that we played it straight it wasn't like we decided you know ahead of time who was going to win we actually like waited around for the vote to see who would actually win these fights now we had a pretty good sense of you know batman's going to beat captain america because he's batman and superman's going to beat the hulk because you know he's superman you know it was in it was in effect a popularity contest so um we knew spider-man was going to win we knew spider-man fought superboy right spider-man fought superboy um uh, although it was the it was the clone Spider-Man, even though we, I I tried as much as I could to play it like, well, he's really Peter Parker. <laughs> don't don't look too closely at this. Just pretend it's Peter Parker. Um, and then uh, we you know we knew that Wolverine would be Lobo because Lobo was a popular character at the time, but not anywhere on the scale of Wolverine. So the sure. so the one that we really didn't know how it was all going to shake out was Wonder Woman Storm. That was the one that um, we just didn't know. And, and you have to keep in mind that this is all pre-Marvel Cinematic Universe and DC film and television. Um, so obviously the, the landscape is very different now. Um, I, was, I was on a podcast the other day talking about, you know, like what would be different if we did Marvel versus DC now? And part of it would be, well, uh, you wouldn't see Lobo uh, and you sure as hell see Deadpool. Um, because the, the the movie universes have have affected greatly how how people perceive these characters. Absolutely. Um, so ultimately, we we you know we knew that it was going to be two and two, and then the storm and um, storm and uh, Wonder Woman was really going to decide it. And uh, I think Wonder Woman won. I, honestly, I don't have any real idea. Um, but in order to have the book be ready to go to publication. We had to we had to draw a page. Or we, 
um, the artists had to draw each a, a page of that finale for each of those fights, showing a different winner. So you know, so Dan Jurgens had to draw a, a page of Captain America winning the fight and a page of Batman winning the fight, so that though that artwork was ready to go as soon as the votes were tallied. Um, and so we we did that, and I tried to write those pages with as little change as possible yeah. uh, to cut down on the work because we were doing this doing this fairly fast. We you know we the the project got approved, everybody got brought in, and then we had to go because we wanted to get the books into um, into the stores as quickly as possible. Uh, so it was a you know it was kind of a race to the finish. Um, so there are, you know, there are two versions of each battle that, that were drawn. Um, that's why there's, a, they, there's an alternate universe somewhere where the opposite person won. And by the yeah, way, yeah. Storm actually won the fight. Did she really? Yeah. Um, so if I'm remembering correctly, Wonder Woman has Thor's hammer for some reason. And yeah, she, yeah, lets, yeah. she lets the hammer go. So the fight will be fair. And then Storm zaps her with a whole bunch of lightning in a row. Um, sure. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> I think um, that's what happened. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I mean that's like that's why um, that's why the Wolverine Lobo fight is basically decided behind a bar, um, with the winner being able to come up and smoke a cigar because sure, sure. both smoke cigars at that point. Now, obviously, smoking cigars in comics is verboten now, um, so we couldn't get away with that gag. But um, but I tried to write these as economically as possible so that the artists weren't drawing redrawing a bunch of. Uh, a bunch of artwork. We just had to get uh, we had to get to the finish line as quickly as possible. Now we also had a we also had a Namor versus Aquaman, and Quicksilver versus Flash, and my personal favorite, not really, is a uh, Jubilee versus Robin. <laughs> yeah, we did. Um, in we there was a follow up miniseries called All Access um, that I wrote as well, and Butch Geist drew. Um, so, um, which, which included a character that could cross between the two universes. Um, he was co-owned by Marvel and DC and I assume still is co-owned. You'll just never see him again. Um, but, um, in that I had, um, Jubilee and Robin sort of starting a teenage romance, uh, very much the star-crossed lovers, uh, you know, Capulets and Montagues thing. Uh, they they wanted to be together, but they couldn't be together because they lived in different universes. When you started DC versus Marvel, did you guys know you'd be doing the Amalgam universe afterward? Um, we did. Um, we did, and you know that came about because, um, or it didn't come about. It was in place. Like the the planning of it was in place. So Peter David and I um, met with the respective editors from Marvel and DC out of the office. We met at um, we met at the apartment uptown Manhattan of Mark Grunewald, who was an executive editor at Marvel. Yeah, um, I'm a huge Grunewald fan. So, um, so Grooney, you know, we met at Grooney's place. Um, Mike Carlin was there. He was the, you know, one of the executive editors at DC, the Superman editor at the time. Um, so it was, it was those two guys and me and Peter, and that was it. Um, they didn't want us meeting on site anywhere because they didn't want anybody seeing that group of people together and wondering, well, what the hell's going on there? Um, so, uh, so we, we met at Mark's apartment and literally kind of started to cobble together the story there other than, um, 
you know, other than, well, let's have a bunch of Marvel and DC heroes fight. We didn't know what the story was going to be. Um, so we started to hammer it together there. And probably somewhere in my filing cabinet, I have a, I have a, you know, I have a notebook that has all of the battles that we came up with right there, you know, and the obvious ones like, well, Green Arrow and Hawkeye should have an archer's contest, you know, all of the stuff that we, we had glimpses of in the series and didn't have, you know, didn't have enough room to portray everything as, as broadly as we might have wanted to. Um, and then when we sort of got through, well, here's, here's the basics of, here's the basic framework of what we're going to do. Um, Mark and Mike told us, all right, well, after issue three, we're going to take a month off and have, um, and have these books called Amalgam. And I remember my jaw hit the floor. I was like, are you shitting me? Like, we're actually going to do this? Um, and they were, you know, like, yeah, this is, you know, we're going to, we're going to do 12 books. I think, I think it was, yeah, I think it was 12, six and six, um, smashing the characters together because that was also going to be a big, um, you know, a big sales boost for, um, for the retailers. So that, so that the, um, the event itself was going to last five months rather than four months and, you know, sell more copies and put more money in the tills of, uh, of comic shops. Um, so they had, they had basically the amalgam books figured out. Mark and Mike had done it themselves. Um, so they had the titles and which characters are going to be smashed together. Um, and when they, when they got to Dr. Strange Faith, I was like, I'm, I'm doing that one. Or <laughs> I'm walking out of here right now. Um, which obviously I wasn't walking out of there right now, but, uh, uh, but they said, okay, you can do that one. Um, and it was, it was that simple. There was a, there was a couple of X related books for those that want to look these up. There's a book called legends of the dark claw, which mixed Wolverine and Batman together fighting. I think it was the hyena who was Joker and Sabretooth mixed together. And his sidekick was Sparrow who a Robin and Jubilee mixed together. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a, it was a fun book. Uh, we also got, I think it was called the amazing X patrol. X-Men mixed with Teen Titans or Doom Patrol or something. Uh, it's been a long time. I think, it was, I think it was Doom Patrol and, and um, X-Men and maybe some Teen Titans. I mean, stuff really got smashed together. It was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, um, it, was, it was crazy. And then uh, 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 there was an Amazon book, too, with Storm and Wonder Woman mixed together. Uh, so just a ton of fun. If you want to go back and find those, I know a lot of people still write fan fiction about these characters who haven't really been seen in a very long time. Uh, Travis, were you familiar with the DC versus Marvel, the amalgam stuff back in the nineties? Oh, well, I remember seeing it, but at the time I was, I was I think I was going down like a, a, a X-Men rabbit hole leading to age of apocalypse. And like, I remember like being in that heavily in that camp. And at the time I was also kind of making my own comics. So a lot of my time was kind of spent doing that, unfortunately. Sure. Well, but that's not now that you're talking about it, I mean, this is all stuff like I'm like, okay, now I've got to make time <laughs> and I got to go back and like get back to my, you know, all the stuff I missed during my childhood that was apparently awesome. And I just never, I just, it was never on my radar, but that's how comics was. It was, you know, it was the nineties. It was just so much like there was just, you, you had to kind of like, pick a camp and just kind of like stay in it, uh, you know, and you, as kids, you had a finite amount of money. 
So yeah, it's uh, it, it it adds up pretty quickly for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, Ron, you continue to work in the industry quite often. What what do you look for in a project nowadays? Is it opportunity? Is it offer? Do you get to kind of pick and choose? Um, yes to all of the above. Um, you know, is is it interesting? Is it going to be fun? I mean, that's that's a that's a primary concern. Um, uh, I don't I don't think I've I don't think I've ever taken a job in thirty years that I thought man, that's going to suck, but the money's good. So I'll do it like that's. <laughs> this is, you know, the money's got to be really good to take on a job like that. So, so mostly it's stuff like, am I going to have fun doing that? And, and generally the answer is yes. I mean, this is, this is comics and um, you make your own fun. And I still think this is, this is the best job in the world. I mean, I work in, I work in video games as well, but um, I'm still doing comics because I still love comics. So um, so I try to do a, a mix of creator own stuff that's, that's mine that I own and that I can do whatever I want with. And then a mix of, you know, what looks cool, what, what kind of toys do I get to play with? Um, and you know, I, I don't really have a plan of how I approach it. I, it's not like I have a, you know, a, a whiteboard of career goals on the wall here in front of me. Um, you know, it's just, a, it's just a matter of, well, that, that sounds cool. Let's do that. Um, rather than, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough that I've gotten to play with just about all the toys that there are in the cabinet, you know, um, was there ever, was there ever a Ron Mars X-Men story that almost was, um, you know, not, not really the X office was never one that I had a whole lot to do with, um, it was just, I was, you know, I was playing with other toys. Um, and at the time the X-Men office was the, um, was in the early, early to mid nineties, the X-Men office was the, was the one that everybody wanted to get into. Cause those were, um, those books were selling like crazy numbers and the, frankly, the royalties were insane. Um, so uh, there was a long line at the door to, um, to get in. So I ended up doing, you know, sort of stuff on the fringes, like, you know, what if issues and obviously um, those characters, um, those characters in other projects or as guest stars. Um, And I was certainly like when I was a kid, I was a, you know, big Avengers fan, you know, Avengers drawn by George Perez and drawn by John Byrne. And those were the, those were the two books. Those were the the two biggies. Um, But I didn't really pursue a lot of X-Men stuff because there was enough on my plate. And like I said, there was a long line to get in the door. Um, I do remember um, that I, I pitched a, I pitched a Wolverine um, one shot, like a prestige book in the, in the mid nineties, there were a lot of prestige sort of square bound 48 page books that were done, um, which frankly, I just loved as a, as a format. Um, And it was a, um, it was a Wolverine in Japan story. Um, Wolverine in Japan with, I think, Silver Samurai appearing. And um, the only thing, the only, the only distinct thing I remember about the pitch, and it just, it, it ended up not going anywhere. The only distinct thing I remember is there was a, um, there was a big fight with um, Wolverine and I guess some ninjas on top of a bullet train, uh, which I thought, well, that, that, that would have been really cool. But, um, but that one, that one never came off. 
the uh, the impact you've had on the industry, I think, is pretty profound. You've been, I mean, when you've been, anytime someone says, I've been writing comics for 30 years, obviously they've left a pretty sizable legacy in a lot of different characters. Uh, I, I grew up adoring your Silver Surfer work, and it's just such an honor to hear you talk about your process and to hear some of the behind the scenes stuff. I don't think we as readers often take the time to think about sales figures and what's happening and how the industry's bottoming out or what, how decisions are, how the sausage is being made, if you will. Well, so I think there's and, a lot of value there. And ultimately you should, like as readers, that's that's not your concern. Your concern is, you know, do I like this? Am I entertained? Um, that's the only thing you should really be thinking about. Uh, but, you know, once you get a peek behind the curtain and you see, as you said, how the sausage is made, um, you know, th- there are obviously real world decisions and and um, financial decisions, business decisions, you know, intellectual property decisions that are all part of that, um, that tapestry. Um, but like I said, it's not, it's not something that the readership needs to be concerned about or even should be concerned about. It's, um, but other than knowing that, you know, sometimes decisions are made that, that aren't purely creative. You know, sometimes, sure. sometimes the real world, um, inserts itself into this these fantasy worlds that we um that we pursue and uh comics are are and have always been a shotgun marriage of of art and comics you know ultimately the ultimately the books have to sell or you don't get any more of them so uh so it's a you know publishers are concerned with 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 numbers as well as the creative aspect of it yeah yeah and that can be tricky because i i mean all of us in this room are creatives of some kind and when you're trying to do what you love and support yourself at the same time that's always tricky but here we are talking about these characters that are larger than life because they've been around for so long and are so well supported so with that let's transition into our review of x-men number 37 today we're gonna give a little bit of context here we uh this is basically the fourth year plus a little bit of X-Men publication history. Stan and Jack wrote back at the beginning, most of the issues in the early 60s books are are one-offs, right? Uh, Sometimes we'll see a two-part arc, but really the only really serious intense arc we've seen up to this point is the three-issue arc that introduces the Sentinels, uh, which is kind of a heavy, shocking, you know, very, very action-driven storyline. And we're about to launch into another one of those. So for about a year of publication history, Roy Thomas has been slowly building this idea of the threat of Factor 3. They've been kind of behind the scenes. They've kidnapped Professor X. They've sent some spider robots to investigate uh, that Spider-Man and the X-Men fought. Uh, They've been kind of manipulating things behind the scenes. And we don't really know who they are or what they are, but the X-Men have now tracked them using Cerebro to the Alps. They've gotten airfare to arrive and we're picking up this issue when they are flying into Europe to try to find Professor X. So this issue tonally is a little bit more serious than the last few have been, which have kind of been nonsense, if I'm honest. Uh, And then we're gonna continue into the next couple issues, which still match kind of serious tones and have a lot of themes to them. Uh, so we're going to do an issue review today. Let's, uh, as we're beginning, uh, if, if you guys just give some of your thoughts on the cover of uh, of number 36. We get uh, a man in a weird hat <laughs> looking over a computer terminal into a room where the five X-Men are being held under a force dome. What did you guys think of this cover? Was it effective? What did you like about it? What did you dislike? Well, uh, from an artistic standpoint, I, I actually do like it. I like it a lot because in a lot of the ways that 
it, it kind of also kind of goes back to that original X-Men number one cover that's so iconic where, you know, you've got the, you know, Magneto and you've got the, the X-Men and, you've, you know, it's, it, there, there's depth, then that's what they want to get through. And sure. this is a very simple way to do it. But they also just try to tell the whole story in one image, which is always kind of nice too. I mean, you've got, you know, X-Men trapped. They're obviously using all their powers and they can't do anything about it. And this guy's just calmly watching them. So behind a, behind a lot of gadgets and stuff. Yeah, Kirby so you, Tech. You know that he's he's a tech wizard and he's uh, he's not to be trifled with. But also that hat. You don't trifle with that hat or a helmet. <laughs> we have some we have some serious headgear in this issue. Iceman almost looks like he's just throwing a little fit. He's just like yeah. shooting some snow at the ground, like God damn it! Yeah, his knee, his 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 knee po- his knee posture is kind of odd. Uh, it looks like he's kind of falling over, like he's almost throwing that so that he doesn't fall to on his right side. Um, but but yeah, like I mean, honestly, I, and the one thing I've noticed about this, I haven't really looked at a lot of like old uh, X Men comics, but like Professor X looks like he's in so much pain at the top of those those old comics like like his power hurts so bad that's constipated xavier yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's xavier on a 14-hour flight with food poisoning (laughs) (laughs) we also have angel flying under this force dome for no reason there is no reason for him to fly right now yeah i will say this though the one thing that that this this comic has in and we'll get to it when we actually talk about like you know what what's actually happening in it but the use of the of the 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 motion lines on this cover is actually quite good compared to most of the use of motion lines in the rest of the book like they they actually do it where they start at a point uh below uh beast's feet and then they kind of wraps around so you actually kind of follow it and i just wasn't noticing a whole lot of like really good use of that of that technique but on the cover they use it perfectly yeah yeah that's really nice uh ron had you read this issue before i don't think i had um you know maybe uh, maybe years and years ago but it 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 obviously made no impression on me whatsoever um and uh you know it's i find it kind of fascinating in that um you know, X Men at this point in its in its inception in its run was you know was was B was a B level book at best, maybe a C level book. This was not um, this was not the one where um, you know Kirby or Ditko or Buscema was doing the work. It was you know kind of the meat and potatoes guys, um, and you know you would reading this, you would have no sense that this franchise would would end up spawning the um the book of the 70s and 80s and 90s right um so it's it's an entirely different um x-men um it's an entirely different x-men franchise it's just sort of it just kind of has this charm of being the thing that's over here and they kind of let it keep going but nobody's really that into it um, yeah, Roy, Roy Thomas, we interviewed just a few weeks ago, and he said back then it was basically Marvel's fourth or fifth most popular team book, and they only had four or five team books. <laughs> yeah, from from my understanding of this era, you know, having you know talked to people that were working on books in this era and, and all that years ago, that this was X Men was always teetering on the brink of cancellation. 
um, and obviously eventually did get canceled. Yeah. Um, so it was it was just one that never really caught fire with the with the readers. Um, and uh, you know the the creative teams on it. Um, I think really until Neil Adams showed up, um, the creative teams on it were just like, hey, who's you know who's walking through the office today? Um, uh, you know, it's, it's the, it's the, like I said, it's, it's the workman like meat and potatoes guys that, that end up doing this kind of material, even though obviously, um, you know, Ross Andrew and Don Heck, I mean, pretty, pretty awesome creators, uh, at the end of the day with, with just huge resumes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but at the time they were not the guys, uh, they were, you know, they were the, you know, they were the bench. Um, not the not the all-stars so um you know in in reading this again um i was just reminded that this is you know it's a it's a really solid really entertaining silver age comic yeah um but it wasn't one that the readership went crazy for right right and again this is a totally more serious book than the last several have been there's been some nonsense in the recent months uh when we open the book uh it's called we the jury uh, I'm going to note really quickly before we start our summaries, we're introducing a character here that we're not going to spend a lot of time on today. We'll, in, a, in, a, in a, another couple episodes, I'll give more of an in-depth history, but we have a character named the Changeling here who has the worst hat in comics history or the best, depending on how you decide to assess it. Uh, he's looking at an image, and I'm just going to note this quickly, of the X-Men fighting Juggernaut, which apparently this image has been pulled from Professor X's brain. But we have the Juggernaut in his original costume, so from the first time he appeared, fighting the X-Men in costumes that they didn't wear in continuity, continuity until much later. So there's an art flub here, which, I don't know, you got to interpret the Professor X's memories kind of jumbled together or something. That's how you get a no prize out of this. <laughs> uh, Heather Professor Wood, X, drinking again, not really <laughs> sure of his memories. I don't think he ever stopped. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the, the splash itself is kind of a... Uh, kind of an indication of what the, you know, what the Marvel mindset was in that, you know, it's the first page is a splash page and somebody's fighting. Yep. Um, And it's, and it's, and it's really a guy watching TV, but damn it on the TV, there's somebody fighting because that's what, you know, that's what Marvel's mindset was. Um, Well, for, for a long time, but certainly in the sixties is, Man, something something cool's got to happen on page one. It's the attention um, grabber, yeah, yeah. Um, well, even when I, you know, when I broke in and started started writing Surfer, that was still the that was still the notion was something cool better happen on page one because because if you know if somebody plucks this off the spinner rack back in the days when there were still spinner racks um, and opens up to page one and it's some boring shit of people standing around talking. They're going to close it and put it back and buy something else. Um, and I still kind of agree with that philosophy is, you know, make make page one something cool so that if if somebody opens that book in a comic shop or, uh, you know, on a newsstand somewhere, they just go, I, I got to find out what happens next. I'm taking this home with me. Travis, by the way, that's what Juggernaut's original costume looks like. Yeah, I figured as much when like I was, a, you were talking. You were not. You were talking about. It, I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." It's like a potato diaper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, with, with a very conical kind of helmet. Yeah, yeah. I'll send you some images. Yeah, I'm uh, excited. Heather, can you hear me? 
Okay, Heather's having some sound issues, so I'm going to proceed uh, as as we go in. So as we as we begin with this issue, I'm just going to summarize the first couple pages quickly. We see the changeling at the Factor Three base, looking at Professor X's memories to see how the X Men have played out. Now, the the Factor Three has already worked with the Juggernaut. That's partly how they got Professor X, but that's not super noted here. Uh, the changeling's helmet is a bizarre multi-layer I don't know how to describe this thing it's got things coming out the sides and the top and it's pink and orange and there's all kinds of weird headgear how would you guys describe changeling's hat it's just bizarre it's a Christmas ornament (laughs) it's like six-sided if you count his neck and his face and it's basically like a three-dimensional star that just kind of points out in all these different ways I will say this about the helmet and this is the one thing I noted is that so changeling's best feature are his eyes and the helmet provides that dark area that shadow that hides his his eyes and gives him that you know real villainy kind of look but it also the fact that his eyes are a bit cat-like are kind of um are accentuated so the helmet is weird and dumb i guess as it is uh space age i guess and, and and alien as it could be it really does make him look like a villain because the first thing you go to is those eyes they're just big white you know stark uh lights that just draw you right in um my thought is that that helmet was designed by someone other than the guy who had to draw it over and over again in the issue yeah that's a really great right. assessment. That's a hallmark of of here. This looks cool, but now you got to draw it thirty times mm-hmm. over the next month. <laughs> it's got four colors and uh, all these little details, and yeah, thanks. The changeling. The changeling is not used often in the old comics, but I'll say this very quickly. He uh, he is the template for the character Morph who appears in the X-Men animated series and who's also a big character mainstay in the Exiles series, uh, who was pretty popular back in the day. Uh, so uh, he's he's iconic, but he's not going to be around long. We'll talk about him more and what happens to him in a while. And we'll just know Professor X is a huge asshole, <laughs> which is something we talk about pretty regularly. So uh, he's watching and assessing the X-Men, uh, or excuse me, the X-Men's history from their memories from Professor X. Uh, and he is reporting to Factor 3 from their various bases. It looks like they've dug a big cavern out in some mountains. They've got a lot of alien tech, it looks like. they got a bunch of robots. They're getting ready for the X-Men to come. Uh, the X-Men are on a flight. They uh, <laughs> are talking about Factor 3. The stewardess walks by, and she says, pardon me, but is that what was this Factor 3 thing you were just talking about? And the Beast cracks the joke, oh, it's nothing, it's just a new ingredient for liquid detergents, which is amazing. Now, Factor 3, we've explained briefly before, and we'll get this in the issue, but this is during the Cold War era. So America and its allies are Factor 1, Russia and its allies are Factor 2, and then this is like the mutant factor, it's the third factor. But Roy Thomas, even in our interview a few weeks ago, he goes, I realize it sounds like an an alternative brand toothpaste, like it's a terrible, (laughs) terrible name for a villain group, but that's where it comes from. Um, As we're jumping in just a little bit, we see the X-Men kind of worried about everything that's going on, what are they going to do, save Professor X? But Factor 3 hits the entire plane with one of their ships, which is pretty deadly. It's putting everyone on the plane at risk. Uh, and the X-Men quickly realize that in order to save everybody else, they got to jump out of the plane. 
uh, which is kind of stunning. I'm picturing myself as a 60s teenager reading this book and being like, oh, holy shit, they just jumped out of a plane. What's going to happen? Uh, we see several panels of them really working hard to make it to Earth safely. There's lots of sound effects. Uh, once they've jumped out of the plane, the, the factor tree ship targets them instead. Cyclops manages to, to uh, blast it, but then his glasses fall off. <laughs> really struggling to get... My just fell off. No. Uh, they're trying to get down to Earth. They're trying to rip Angel's jacket off so that they can get his wings free of his harness and he can save them all. Jean's trying to use her telekinesis to slow everybody down. Uh, it's it's kind of high drama. And there's literally a note at some point on page six where they say, uh, by the way, the human mind goes at incredible speed. So even though this is several panels, it all takes place in just a couple seconds because, you know, they're, they're going to fall to the Earth otherwise. But they sure have time for lots of words as they're falling. Uh, Travis, do you want to take over uh, page, pages six through 10? Tell us what happens and let's talk about it for a minute. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that was one of my, my first point is that Stan's, you know, got to come in and be like, hey, we know this is like, you know, a lot of pages, uh, but this is all like, you know, bam, 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 like really happening fast. Um, <laughs> the, the concept of uh, Jean being able to slow them down a little bit, or at least just herself and Bobby uh, is, is kind of a nice touch. Uh, it does kind of remove them from the quote unquote action uh, sure. uh, and the, and the high stakes of what's happening to um, Hank Angel and uh, Scott. But, uh, but yeah, like uh, uh, the first things that I noticed was as this goes through um, in the, in the initial part, when they're jumping out of the plane, there's a lot of really good, you know, establishing shots of like, okay, the plane is up here and then the clouds are down there and then they're kind of flailing and it's like, it gives them like, it gives a good high drama. The rest of it, it's like, they just didn't know, they either didn't have time, they didn't know what to do. They're, it's just like, they're hanging out in blue. Um, and there's, there doesn't feel like the stakes and like what I said earlier, where they, they don't, they use the, 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 the motion lines. Uh, they use them in an odd way where it doesn't really feel like they're falling. It just kind of looks like they're jiggling. Like they're just kind of vibrating their way down, which is interesting. Um, but again, you know, uh, ultimately they all have to use their powers uh, to, you know, one at a time. Uh, Scott has to, you know, open his eyes and destroy a rock that they're going to crash into. And then, you know, Angel finally gets his wings free and, and grabs both of them and, uh, uh, Jean is slowing Bobby and herself down and then they all catch each other. And even though Scott is, you know, of course going to sacrifice himself because you got to drop me to make, to lighten the load. And then Bobby uses his, his, uh, 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 uh his ice bridge, ice, ice, his ice slide. You got to make an ice slide. And, and as weird and, and as like, you know, uh, uh, uh almost, kind of hanging in limbo. There's not a lot of shots where they pull back because I know in the day that the whole point was you got to draw the characters like they're up front, like they're the, the, the reason that people are buying the book. So you want to constantly be focusing on them. Some wide shots would have probably helped uh, with the tension, with the flow of the, of the stuff. But, you know, again, this is another era of art and they just, it, the pacing was different then. Um, but uh but the one thing that I will say is that on page eight, the first three panels are great because they could have easily just done that in one panel, shown the whole action movement, but they break it into three. 
and they all kind of meet together like a triptych and it, it makes you, it, it puts in those pauses and makes you move your eye so that you join it all together in your mind. And I was really impressed by, by their use of that. And I was just kind of like, like, it's just like, it's so spotty. It's just like, okay. Like, like there's not a lot of high drama, but that actually adds a little bit of high drama and it's right at the end when they're all landing. Uh, and then, Although, uh, although Jean's sliding in her yellow mini dress is, I don't know, it's everything. It's, it's great <laughs> because she's actually, I mean, she even notices, she's like, well, this is fun. And in a way, you think about it, she could kind of let all of them kind of go and let gravity grab them. And she would just, you know, slide on down using her, her powers. It's like, may as well have a little bit of fun before the giant spider arachnoids show up in literally the next panel. Um, <laughs> I did like the, uh, the whole like, hey, we got to get on with it thing where it's like, uh, you know, good thinking, Iceman, as soon as you, as soon as you land, get into your uniforms, all of you, like as he's, his feet are the only thing you see and he's flying off the page. And then, you know, Iceman has to make a joke about it. Like, you know, you know, he's, he's barking orders while toppling through the air, you know, kind of thing. Uh, interesting way to do it. So that basically a very, I, uh, uh, cleaver-like approach to basically just get them all in their uniforms and get on with it kind of thing so it's just like okay next panel draw them all in their uniforms boom well and as they're falling beast is clutching a suitcase the whole time so presumably all five of their uniforms are in that suitcase and they just gotta keep it well they've got them all under their uh three-piece suits except for uh (laughs) just basically he's slowly but surely become naked almost naked throughout the entire thing uh at one point he actually has he has a shirt and then when they're landing, he his shirt is off. Like he's already ahead of the curve. Like he's just like, I know as soon as we're gonna land, Scott's gonna make us turn into our put in our uniforms. He's 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 jumping the, the curve there. Um they do, they don't really have to talk about having a big fight with the arachnoids because they already know how to kind of beat them because Spider-Man already kind of uh you know fought them and, and he did according to uh, substantiating stand. <laughs> I was like, I love that. I love that kind of stuff. That's like one of the things I love about these old comics is they, they throw in all these like alliterations to their names uh, uh, as they go along. And then, you know, they're surrounded by uh, these, these two, oh, I don't know, Frank Herbert-esque Dune looking characters from, from this, uh, uh, this, 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 cadre of of super villains that they're yeah they're they're there for the spice yeah exactly and they're gonna <laughs> hit them with their uh giant horn guns i don't know they look like sonic guns who knows uh but they are controlling these uh these arachnoids uh they do have some pretty good uh, uh there's a great panel in the middle of page nine where the first panel they show these two characters that are kind of like giving them an ultimatum and they're going to usher them in, you know, to be captured. Uh, and then they kind of do this weird Dutch angle to show like, you know, the threat on the other side of them. And then they pan back for an action shot where beast kicks two of them off of a, of a cliff, uh, of course, using a very, uh, uh, nearby branch, you know, that, that's very, you know, <laughs> it's just, I'm using the environment around me, I guess. Uh, yeah. but the cool thing about that is that, you're seeing it from the lower area. They're falling towards the arachnoids are falling towards the viewer and they put the two characters very small, but they put the two uh, uh, characters up in, you know, the evil characters up in the top left corner. And it really oh, yeah. gives the whole thing some depth and it brings it all together. 
And again, I like, it's very proto, like what they would kind of do in, in comics for like the last like, you know, 30 years, but it's, it's very cinematic, which you don't see a whole lot in, in a lot of this, these older uh, pieces. Um, And then of course they just stamp all over it with the fact that uh, uh, Scott has to explain the curvature of a mountain will save them by running around the side of it so that they can't get to it and he blasts some rocks to you know get around it so it's just kind of like this back and forth uh page 10 though that was this is one of the the, the bigger uh, art flubs that i can, that i could see here is that they do such a good job of doing this mist except for in the first panel where they show you it's mist it looks like a river i thought it was a river at first i was like oh they have to explain that it's mist um but then as soon as they get into the mist easily for my money, the best panel in the whole book, uh, in the whole issue, is the last panel on page ten, because Scott is kind of uh, they 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 end up in this mist. They're gonna it's knockout gas or knockout mist or something that's gonna basically get them to be stuck in in the clutches of these evil uh, overlord type characters that they're introducing, um, and nobody can get out. Even Angel can't fly out. And as Scott is desperately trying to uh, uh, wake up and, and fight it off, he passes out. And they do this cool dissolve where it's like the mist feeds into a picture of them under a dome. And they're, but he, in the, in the mist one, Scott's kind of just like in blue and white, very light colors, uh, shows that he's engulfed in it. And they're fully in color, full light everything in the next one and that's a really cool uh uh transformation and again like i was i kept going back to that panel and looking at it going, wow, that's a really interesting way to pass time on page seven when they're falling and all five of the teammates have their arms around each other there's like this family pose where angel's trying to lower them all down i think it's adorable yeah and i also just want to write our uh, remind our listeners about the spider robots uh it's supposed to be an electronic sound but we just like to presume they're making the sound mm, <laughs> when they're attacking because there's just mm, over and over again <laughs> they're just real hungry uh ron, ron did you have some thoughts on these first 10 pages how did you think the 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 story picked up and played out for you it's it you know it's weird seeing the x-men in a in you know like blazers um it's it's just a it's a it's such a time capsule of of that era like oh you know here here's our really cool superheroes wearing dress clothes and flying commercial you know it's not the era of the x-men having a blackbird or the avengers having a quinjet it's let's fly commercial kids um but but because of that it's it's kind of charming uh and it's um uh you know the whole sequence of them tumbling out of the plane and all that is just uh is just kind of kind of crazy and cool and i think if i was you know if i was 10 years old in 1967 i would think it was really exciting um if if, if the, although let's face it kind of the most exciting thing that that happens in at least the first you know seven or eight pages is oh my god can we get angel's jacket off <laughs> rip it off him <laughs> <clears throat> um 
so yeah, it's it's kind of cool, and also the you know um, the fact that the X Men uniforms in this era are kind of lame, frankly. Um, so so we got to we got to ditch the dress clothes, and we wind up with this. I don't know that it's an improvement. Yeah, no, that's fair. When we get onto pages 11 and 12, we have this beautiful double page spread that sets up a lot of exposition over the next few pages. The five X-Men are trapped under a dome. They are clearly overwhelmed and a little disoriented now that they're waking up. Uh, they look really good here. This panel, this double page spread, you can tell Cyclops has been doing his squats. Jean is surely femininely posed as she lays on the ground as was always necessary. Uh, but they're a little overwhelmed. Now, up on the wall, there are four TV monitors showing four of their old threats that we haven't seen in the book for quite some time. Vanisher was in X-Men number two. We haven't seen him in quite a long time. The Blob has come back a few different times, uh, most recently, I think, in number 21. Uh, Mastermind has been gone since X-Men number 11 when the Stranger turned into stone. And then Eunice the Untouchable was back in number 21 as well. So we get these old mutant threats that haven't been there on a while. And then we see some kind of escalating stair platforms and some crazy technology. The Changeling is standing on one platform with a man behind him, a mysterious man who we will only this issue know as the Mutant Master. Uh, we're going to learn more about these threats, but it's really exciting to see these older characters come back. I adore uh, <laughs> the Vanisher's really fucking stupid headpiece. See, there's like a, it's like a, like, I don't know, like a, a, a woman's wig from like the 1800s but in green i don't know it makes me happy do you do you guys have any favorites out of these characters uh any any x-men villains here that you remember fondly i mean i gotta agree with you on the on the vanisher i mean that 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 is like he's he's basically like the proto version of the uh it's it's like okay so if you if you went on you know wish.com and you ordered uh uh, an outfit that was making you the spitter uh dinosaur from the uh uh from jurassic park yep you'd probably get something that looks a lot like this it's like a big flower head that he's got it's like a big big kind of like lizardy flower head thing and he's he's just so angry yeah he's, he's such an angry character he's just <laughs> he's like i i couldn't i i was i i was the guy you fought right after magneto so I'm super cool because of that. Like I have, if, if I you had cool. to wear that costume, you would be angry too. Oh yeah. I, I oh, think yeah. he's making a choice. Also his real name is Telford E. Porter. <sighs> yep. That's all you there, need. There's stuff. a lot to work with right there. That's a, that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> <laughs> we get a lot of exposition in the next couple of pages. The changeling is basically reminding the X-Men that, you know, they're out of their league. We're going to put you on trial. Uh, this is your jury, but you don't get to speak for yourselves. They show them a monitor that reminds them that both Professor X and Banshee are captive and unconscious, but they do confirm that they are alive. And then we get two full pages of each of the villains recounting how the X-Men screwed with them. And some of it is a little bit just. Vanisher, for example, remembers that Xavier at the end of the issue wiped his entire memory and made him forget who he was. That was not a thing that I would get over very easily. Eunice the Untouchable reminds them that in his first appearance, they used his power so that he couldn't touch anything or even get food uh, before chasing him off. They've wiped the Blob's memory a few different times, and they left Mastermind turned to stone at the end of his last encounter, even though he got better eventually. So all four of these villains have teamed up with Factor 3. They want their revenge, and they vote that the X-Men are guilty, guilty, guilty. Uh, three different guilties in a row, escalating in size and font. 
as, as they increase. Uh, uh, Ron, do you want to wrap up the last five pages for us? Tell us as we expand on the threat of the factor three and what it means. <laughs> well, mostly it's standing around talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of, you know, in the, it's kind of fascinating in the Marvel age of comics, um, which, you know, which, which prized action, action, action above everything else. Man, this is page upon page of people standing around talking. And even that badass double page spread, which is great, um, but also also winds up on pages 11 and 12, which is now a cardinal sin because your, your double page spreads have to land on an even odd page for pagination in, in collected volumes. Um, so to do a, you know, to do a, a spread on 11 and 12 is verboten, but in this era, obviously there's no such thing as collected editions and they just stick an ad in so that the pages fall properly to where they're supposed to. Um, so, but even that, that awesome spread is people standing around being talked to. Um, so it's, it's, I think in some ways, this whole sequence, this whole, um, issue is more, uh, it, it, it to me is again like the the B team coming in and telling a story, um, and a lot of the story is told by people who are telling you the story rather than some cool shit happening. Um, so we get you know we get a bunch of uh, we get a bunch of people standing around talking, um, a bunch of villains doing villainous things and talking you know talking about the villainous things, and then and then the real villain shows up the the mutant mastermind shows up and he has the x-men at his mercy so by god he's going to talk to him some more monologue <laughs> he may as well um, explain his whole plan to them. you know yeah while i have you captured i'm going to explain the entirety of my evil plan and it's going to take at least two pages it's very 60s batman put him in the death trap and then we'll reveal yeah, our put entire him in plot put him in the, in the, the big set piece thing um, that by you know that that they we cut to um, on the bottom of page seventeen um, they get they get they get zonked uh, or or zapped as the as the uh, sound effect tells us um, and get in the bottom third of a page there's a there's a scene change and um, it says a short time later the five captive teenagers awaken to find themselves strapped to a weird awesome apparatus um which I, if there's if there's a more purely silver age caption ever written i don't know what it would be <laughs> um so they're strapped into this cool you know this cool thing although we can't actually it's we basically see their heads and shoulders we don't see anything else of them um which is an odd storytelling choice here but but it seems to me that um that basically um, and I'm sure this was written Marvel style, where it was, you know, a few paragraphs of here's what happens, go go draw the issue. Um, and you can see this in a lot of issues in the era, um, where the pacing was sort of uh, sort of languid initially. And then they go, oh shit, we're on page 17. We better, we better, we better get moving because we got to wrap this up by 20. So so we don't have, uh, we, we get a really cool double spread of the X-Men standing there being talked to. And then when they get strapped into this, uh, and I quote, weird, awesome apparatus, 
We didn't even see the whole thing. They're just, you know, there's just not room to show it. So they're just kind of crammed into the, uh, crammed into a, into a panel on a, uh, crammed into the fifth panel of a six panel page and they escape it pretty easily thanks to Iceman and they hop out of this, uh, this contraption and there's a little bit more fight with, um, with basically a, uh, pretty, pretty wonky looking robot, um, and uh, the robots defeated pretty easily, um, including the sound effect FRAP, which I think um, uh, is trademark and copyright Starbucks now. Uh, so, um, so they uh, they they can't catch the bad guy, and we end the issue. We end the issue with the mutant mastermind. What's he doing? Well, he's talking to him again. He's talking to him on a big TV screen. So, so basically, um, just how we 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 open the issue and end the issue with the bad guy watching the watching the uh, watching the X Men on a TV screen. Um, uh, though, to be fair, that is a that is a pretty cool splash uh, cliffhanger uh, on page twenty, um, where the mutant mastermind tells us he shall rule the mutants, um, which again, if I'm a 10 year old kid in 1967, that's going to bring me back for the next one. So some of the thematic things that are really interesting about this, this, the threat is pretty escalated compared to what the X-Men have been facing recently. Dominus or Magneto sometimes want to, I just said Dominus, Lucifer or Magneto sometimes want to conquer the whole world. But this theme, one of the things that we love about the X-Men now is how they are disenfranchised from society, right? They're the outcasts. Xavier's dream is to peacefully coexist with the humans, where Magneto's dream is to conquer humanity so that the humans or the, the mutants can rise to their natural place on top. And here we see the mutant master who's determined to kill all humans on the planet. He's basically planning for factor three to begin World War III so that the mutants can then rise to the top and he will rule all of the mutants. We're gonna learn who the mutant master is in an issue or two, but it's kind of a fun reveal that's gonna happen in 39. Uh, and uh, and there's, there's kind of this escalating threat. He's also, that machine the X-Men are strapped into is called, and I love these old 60s references, it's called the Oblivio Ray. He's going to brainwash them to uh, to get their their them under his role, like uh, under his dominant rule. He wants to mind control all of the mutants. Uh, so the I, I think the threat level really stands up here in some ways, as, as far as the X Men have recently faced a number of nonsensical threats. Uh, what did you guys think of this this Factor Three group overall? I think they come across as very prepared, a little bit scary, really out of the X-Men's league in some ways. Uh, it's 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 kind of impressive. Did you guys have any thoughts on them as villains? Well, it's I think it's the the classic, you know, let's get a let's get a bunch of villains together. Um uh which which is tried and true and generally, you know, generally works pretty well. Um yeah. and and I think these particular villains are not sort of the A-list. X-Men villains that we would think of in this era. Sure. So taking your B-list dudes and putting them all together, I think makes them more formidable and actually um, makes them a more dramatic choice to, to have the team go up against. Uh, Travis, any thoughts there? Well, I honestly, I kind of like the stakes in that they, you know, within two pages, he kind of explains uh, uh, nuclear annihilation for children. Like, like, okay, we're going to, and it's, and it's not like a lot of the other uh, X-Men villains where it's like, okay, we're going to rule and we want to keep as much of the planet intact. 
he's perfectly fine uh, ruling the ashes of the planet. You know, self it's it's a whole it's a whole thing. Uh, uh, you know, uh, mutually assured uh, destruction, and uh, that's kind of uh, an odd thing to throw into something that is you know very it's a very heavy subject that uh uh for a book like this it seems yeah, like yeah, they're, yeah. they're willing to just it's the last ditch effort and it's not even the last ditch it's his first play like oh th- that's step one step one is world war three and then step two is taking over the ashes and then step three is letting the mutants rise well, and then there's been this year-long threat of Factor 3. They had to neutralize Professor X first, and they had to assess the threat of the X-Men, and they've captured Banshee, and there's there's a lot of different things going on. They've had a lot of long-term plots. Uh, and we're going to, again, we're going to learn more about them in a couple of issues. But this really stands out as far, like, uh, this issue reminds you in a way that previous issues have not, that the mutants are different than the humans. There is prejudice in place, and, and there are evil mutants out there who have a different cause. Now, next issue, when we get into 38, two things are going to happen that are unique. Number one, we see a continuing storyline take place, which wasn't super frequent back then. And number two, we start to see the issues break up. For the next long while, we get 15 pages of story instead of 20. And then the last five pages are showing us flashbacks to the X-Men's lives before the X-Men. So starting in next issue, we get these uh, these origins of the X-Men backup features, which is a, a big change. Uh, and then things start to get real crazy. In a couple issues, we get their new costumes, which is kind of iconic. Uh, we'll see that in uh, in 39. Uh, this was really fun to review with you guys. I, I hope it was fun for you to go back and read a 60s book and just kind of nerd out for a little while. Uh, again, kind of a serious issue, but it's fun to analyze the art and to see kind of where things are and how they have changed over time. As we are wrapping up, uh, two questions for each of you. Uh, number one, did you have a favorite standout moment from this issue that was just better than all the rest either either impression wise or art wise or just sheer ridiculousness uh and then uh number two uh where can people find you online oh i guess there's three questions and what do we have to look forward to coming out from you uh in the near future what should we be watching for so favorite moment in the book where can people find you and then what do you have coming out Uh, ron do you want to start sure um i think you know i think my favorite moment is the is the double spread um it's just a it's just a great piece even though it is everybody standing around and getting talked to um it's a really really gorgeous piece of art uh and uh look if if you're not going to do exciting visual stuff don't bother to do comics at all you know these are (laughs) these are visual documents this is visual storytelling so um so the fact that there's this gorgeous double page spread right in the middle of the book um that shows our heroes at the very least um, under threat and in their costumes uh, to me, it's just a, it's just a really great, um, great visual. And I, and I think overall, you know, this is not a, a well-known famous silver age issue of Marvel comics. This is not a key issue to anyone. This is, this is just another, um, another piece of uh, another monthly book that, you know, that they were ramming out 20 pages to send off to the printer. Um, and I think there's a great deal of, of kind of uh, workmanlike entertaining honor in that is just getting the next issue out and making it a solid superhero comic that, um, that a kid could pluck off a stand and, 
and entertain himself for 20 minutes. Um, I think there's, um, there's great, um, you know, there's great art in, in doing that and serving that function. And I think even though, you know, we've said this is, you know, these creators at this point and X-Men uh, in general at this point were, you know, kind of B-level material, but this is still, you know, hugely entertaining and people putting, um, people putting their blood, sweat and tears into this book. And I think that's completely honorable um, and we should recognize it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, for me, uh, I am at Ron Mars on Twitter. Um, my website is ronmars.com, which will be launching with relaunching in the next few weeks with, you know, with like an actual website with content and a store and appearances and all of that stuff and an updated website. Um, and there's there's also an Instagram and a Facebook, um, though I don't pay as much attention to those as the as the Twitter or the website. Um, and uh, what's coming out? Um, issue two of Silver Surfer Rebirth just came out. Um, which and it's so good. Really oh, beautiful. beautiful. I appreciate yeah. it. Um, so we have uh, the rest of that mini, which is uh, three, four, and five over the next three months. Um, we have uh, issue five of All American will be out probably in a month or so, which is a spy comic, uh, a real life spy comic that I'm doing with Aftershock. Um, let's see. Swamp God is my serial in heavy metal. That continues um, later in the year. I will have an original graphic novel from Naval Institute Press with Rick Leonardi, famed X-Men artist Rick Leonardi. Um, called Blue Angel, um, which is sort of um, military-based, but has a superhero aspect to it. Um, a, a not completely unlike X-Men aspect to it, actually. Um, so that'll be out later in the year. And, um, and I'm, also, uh, I'm also part of the narrative team for Blizzard's Diablo 4. So um, plus various and sundry other projects that are uh, that are scattered around. Oh, um, Project Superpowers. Uh, oh, sure, yeah. Fractured States will be first issue debuts in April, and we're working on that right now too. With uh, I'm co-writing that with Andy Lanning, um, and there's other stuff down the road that hasn't been announced yet. I mean, look at all you've got going on. Uh, even as you just look at your current playing field, you're clearly a busy and in-demand and variable writer who's working in a lot of different places. That's that's super impressive, Rod. I'm 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 impressed. Um, thanks, Jed. It, it, I never, I never wonder what to do when I get up in the morning. There's always something waiting it's, for me. Which project do I, uh, do I access today? Uh, Travis, how about for you? Where, where can people find you and what are you working on now? Well, uh, I, I guess if, if you want to find me on the web, uh, the best places are probably, uh, just Facebook under my name, Travis Bundy, uh, or, uh, Instagram, uh, is, uh, at Bundy mania. Cause I was a huge Hulk fan as a kid, uh, Hulkster fan as a kid um i have a website uh, it's a uh, thoughtboxcomics.com uh that's mostly it's mostly just a, 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 a portfolio site uh but you know you can get a pretty good grasp of all my work on there uh, i do a lot of movie posters uh, i do a lot of uh, uh posters for uh events out here in the pacific northwest so you know and a lot of those are for sale on my etsy store uh, which is uh, Travis Bundy art. And as far as that, that's kind of what I've been doing. I'm just kind of doing a lot of uh, movie posters for showings, uh, local showings out here. Uh, there's a, a, a great 
horror uh, thing that we do every month called Friday Night Frights at a local theater. And we get a local artist, myself included as one of the, the people that does it, uh, to do a, a poster for it. And I recently just did one for Troll 2, which was a lot of fun. Oh my God. Uh, one of the worst, one of the worst <laughs> we ever made. And it, I, I made that poster like, just go off the rails crazy fun because why not you know it's like it, it's troll too you you can't have you can't go too nuts with that thing um but yeah as as far as uh what i'm doing it's, <clears throat> i'll be on the uh the con circuit soon enough uh you know there's a f- cons are slowly but surely coming back back alive and it's hard to uh to know if one's going to be uh uh happening at any given time in any given place but uh, i typically stay to the northwest shows but i'm usually at all of them so my uh my husband and i have recently been hosting a cringe movie night once a month with a group of friends and we just watched troll 2 uh, halloween and it was the stupidest fucking thing i've ever seen it's so good <laughs> it's so bad they made a movie about how bad it is yeah yeah it's uh, it's it's quite stunning and and uh you know travis I, you and i were chatting earlier we haven't seen each other in a decade but travis was working with me professionally during a crazy transition time in my life when i was coming out and having a baby all at the same time uh and you you were so cool and so supportive and so wonderful it's just uh it's just a joy to uh to interact with you again and then ron i'm a huge long-term fan of yours uh what a what an absolute honor to get to know you and to hear uh some of your brilliance behind all the 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 stuff you're doing so thank you both for spending your afternoon with me this has been wonderful it's a lot of my fun. pleasure uh on gray malkin lane uh you can find us on twitter and instagram gray malkin pp like podcast uh on twitter i'm posting pretty regularly about the content that we're doing uh i keep my own social media private because i've got kiddos now we uh we have a number of really cool things coming up i'll announce two things briefly number one in our next issue review we're teaming up with uh with the incredible artist bob bob mcleod who drew the first appearance of the new mutants back in the 80s uh we're really excited to interface with bob uh we also have a really epic two-part episode about magneto coming up uh uh, in just a few weeks where it's going to be maybe the most special thing we've ever done on the podcast so uh so stay tuned we'll have some announcements coming forward uh, we'll see you guys back here next time on the Grand Malkin Lane. Bye.